Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the never-ending struggle where we chronicle the triumphs and tragedies, the defeats and the victories of the Catholic Church on her pilgrimage through the centuries in hopes of encouraging and elucidating the times that have gone before to help you and me manage to live in these times we find ourselves in. And as you may have noticed, if you've been following the show, and if you haven't, you can go to uh, vmpr.org and catch up. Uh, we have been going through the last several decades in uh, Catholic America. Last week, we did 1978 to 1988, and we covered the reign of uh, Ronald Reagan as president and the early years of Pope John Paul II. This week, we're going to do 1988 to 1998, which was quite an amazing and bizarre time in the church and the world. Uh, the, our first two sessions will deal with things happening in the United States as a whole, and then we will focus in on the church in the last two segments and how they were affected, how we were affected, I should say. And I can say we, because I was very much alive and a part of things back then. But let's start at the beginning, the year of our Lord, 1988. Well, that was the year that uh, Ronald Reagan stepped down and was replaced with his heretofore vice president, George Herbert Walker Bush, Bush Sr., because, of course, he would later be succeeded by his son. Uh, for reasons that will become apparent momentarily, in my humble opinion, Mr. Bush in terms of lost opportunities and failed attempts, uh, probably will go down in history ultimately as one of the worst presidents we've ever had. But we'll set that aside for the moment. He had been uh, basically forced on Ronald Reagan as vice president by the party machine, Reagan being very definitely an outsider. When he uh, came to power. He was renowned for being very low-key, very waspy. He had a, uh, a heroic war record, which was certainly not a small thing. Uh, his father, uh, Prescott Bush, had been one of the major pushers of birth control, a great uh, fan of Planned Parenthood and so on, uh, in a very wasp, uh, eugenical kind of way. So uh, George Bush, however, George Bush Sr. had left Connecticut, the Yankee land of his birth, and had made it big in Texas. Well, as president, uh, Bush had a very hard act to follow, and that hard, uh, hard, hard uh, act was none other than uh, Ronald Reagan. Reagan, very graciously, very gallantly rode off into the sunset and um, eventually would declare that he, had, uh, he was uh, going into dementia and withdrew from public life. That He would do that in 1995. But for those of us who left behind, things were a little bit different. For one thing, uh, Mr. Bush suffered from what uh, he called the vision thing. 
And that, that meant really not having any vision. Although he was the first one to uh, popularize the phrase uh, New World Order, which, as you can imagine, sent shivers up the spine of those who heard it. But something amazing uh, happened uh, under, uh, under Bush's watch, the likes of which, well, those of us alive at the time had not expected to see. On the one hand, pushed by a resurgent church and John Paul II, and on the other, by an arms race with the United States, which they could not afford, the Eastern Bloc came tumbling down. The Berlin Wall fell in 1989. The Soviet Union dissolved in 1991. This, ladies and gentlemen, was one of the most wonderful things that I have ever seen in my life. And sitting here right now as I speak these words in Austria, in a school that uh, has an awful lot of both uh, uh, faculty, alumni, and current students and staff from the former Eastern Bloc, I can tell you it would not be possible for this place to exist had that not happened. Um, it, it was, in, at the time, nothing short of miraculous. Now, it was a time also of great opportunity for the United States. Um, at the time, and I'm not telling tales out of school because I, I did, I was writing in those days, I, I wrote columns and so forth. At the time, I was of the opinion that Russia needed to be welcomed back into the family of nations, as it were. And I maintained then, and I still think it would have been a good idea, that the United States ought to have indulged in a Marshall Plan, both for uh, Central and Eastern Europe and for Russia herself. And that we should either have left NATO or invited the Russians to join. Because Yeltsin's Russia was a very different place than what the country has become now. Had we been willing to embrace the newly freed countries as full members and partners of the family of nations, things might have been very different today. Instead, when Bulgaria and Romania made noises about restoring their former kings who had been deposed by the communists, these were directly vetoed by the Bush White House. The, um, in various ways, the uh, screws were tightened on Russia after, uh, after the, fall of, uh, the fall of communism. And there was also the Ukrainian matter, the question of Crimea, Sevastopol, all these things came up at the time. Um, and if that were not bad enough, Yugoslavia broke up into uh, warring uh, countries, particularly Croatia, Bosnia, and Serbia. And here too, Mr. Bush would not intervene until very, very late. So lots of Croatians, lots of Serbs, lots of Bosnians died. And the carnage would continue into his successor's uh, reign. Things that had 
not been seen since World War II, and all, in my humble opinion, preventable. Also, uh, in addition to trying to stop the breakup of Yugoslavia, Mr. Bush was very much against the breakup of Czechoslovakia, and I think for the same reason. Uh, these two countries were, how do I put this? These two countries were uh, the creations of American diplomacy in 1918. And I've always suspected that uh, Mr. Bush had an extremely nostalgic feel about them and was not keen on seeing them go the way of all flesh. At any rate, in internal matters, um, the uh, slowly but surely, things continued to go downhill, uh, but very slowly. There was a feeling of, in the land of a lack, well, a lack of direction. Also, the first Gulf War. Uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait under the assumption that the United States would not uh, not be disturbed by the overthrow of yet another small monarchy. But as it happened, our ambassador at the time somewhat misled them, and our reaction was, well, in the immortal words of uh, in the immortal words of Mr. Bush, shock and awe. <clears throat> the uh, I remember watching the television when we began the bombardment of Baghdad. During the campaign uh, in 1988 against uh, Governor Dukakis, uh, Mr. Bush had promised a thousand points of light. So a friend of mine calls me, says, turn on the television. I'm watching all the, all the uh, tracer rounds hitting Baghdad. And my friend said, oh, look, there are the thousand points of light Mr. Bush promised. Ha, 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 ha. Well, it was funny if you were there. Anyway, the, uh, the uh, Gulf War ended fairly quickly. The Iraqis were broken. But Mr. Bush, I think very wisely, uh, decided once it was over to pull out. And that was probably a smart decision. Later on, his son would do otherwise, but doubtless we'll come to that at some other point. The Bush presidency lasted a short four years. And other than the fall of the of the Soviet bloc, uh, the attendant joy, which he didn't have anything to do with, really, uh, it was his predecessors doing, and the Gulf War, apart from those two things, there's not, not a great deal you could say for Mr. Bush. That was not the case for his successor, Mr. Clinton. We'll see him momentarily.
looking at the United States in uh, the the uh, decade 88 to 98. Now, Mr. Bush ran against an interesting man indeed. The governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton, William Jefferson Clinton, who came equipped, oddly enough, with a wife uh, by the name of Hillary. She was a Michigander, he was an Arkansan, and they were the quintessential political couple, to say the least. A uh, friend of mine from Arkansas I went to school with, I asked him what it was like having his governor uh, running for president of the United States, and his response was, Slick Willie, he's pound scum. I've never heard pond and scum have that many syllables, but that's what he said. At any rate, uh, in 92, he defeated George Herbert Walker Bush. And a lot of people were very, very, very upset. Um, a lot of uh, conservative Catholics, a lot of pro-lifers. And they had reason to be. They had reason to be. Because Bill Clinton, he would serve two terms. And in some ways, bring the presidency to incredible new lows uh, that it had never yet reached. Uh, the latter portion of his uh, of his time, which is beyond our date of ninety eight, nevertheless is important because he um, he dragged uh, his affairs into the Oval Office quite literally, uh, and he was impeached. He lied under oath. America's best known perjurer was the the joke that they uh, they gave him, but. He did a lot of other things of uh, some importance. Again, because of the moral tone uh, he set, the slide continued. It would not, however, be until uh, 2006, I believe, in 1986, uh, during the Reagan years, the Supreme Court had upheld an anti-sodomy law which meant that states uh, during the time under, uh, under uh, examination could still keep homosexuality and other um, interesting uh, activities illegal. After our time, that would be knocked down. And in very, very short order, we would end up with the situation we have now. But between 88 and 98, that was not the case. And so in comparison, uh, both left and right seem rather conservative to what we have today. But uh, there were all sorts of whispers that the president was uh, entirely too close to the Chinese. Uh, the, uh, of course, he was very pro-abortion. Um, the Republicans tended to be anti-abortion, but... Uh, non-active about it, uh, whereas the Democrats were extremely active. And certainly, certainly the uh, in the days of Clinton, the federal government did everything it could to, to encourage uh, the spread of uh, abortion at home and abroad. So that was not, not uh, very pleasant. There were stresses and strains between the church and the president, but none of them very major. 
there were some interesting sidelights, of course. Uh, one of them was the um, uh, the uh, young Cuban refugee boy who uh, was was brought to America and then sent back to communist Cuba. That caught the attention of uh, many people. But probably the, the biggest area of foreign, uh, foreign affairs, because to be honest with you, President aside, America in the 90s was doing fairly well economically. And in that sense, it was a pleasant time. But in terms of foreign affairs, uh, we um, got embroiled in the Balkans. And in uh, uh, 98, 96, 97, 98, 99, uh, 98, 99 in particular, uh, we went to actually bombing Serbia without declared war, of course. um, Clinton's time was, again, filled with all sorts of annoyances for those of conservative and Catholic bent. But from today's perspective, one could almost be nostalgic about it. As I say, the economy was doing well. Uh, Many of the states that are now poorly run were very well run then. Uh, in New York, for instance, it was the the heyday of uh, Mayor Giuliani. He had cleaned up crime, and the city of New York was really undergoing quite the uh, quite the renaissance. Uh, the job that Giuliani did in New York was nothing worse, uh, nothing less than astonishing. He brought the city back from the brink. And there were a lot of similar stories scattered around the country uh, due not to Bill Clinton, uh, but to uh, local initiative, which was a wonderful thing to see. One thing Bill Clinton did that was interesting is he uh, uh, tacked all sorts of requirements onto welfare. And this brings us, ladies and gentlemen, to an interesting point about American politics, and that is that Republicans, like Richard Nixon with wage and price controls, could do leftish things that Democrats could never get away with. Uh, opening the Red China was another thing he did. Nixon, I mean. Contrary-wise, had the Republicans tried to limit uh, uh, or, or to tack require, uh, labor requirements under welfare, they'd have been crucified. But a Democratic president could get away with it. So it was uh, it was an amazing sleight of hand, as it always is. In, uh, in Clinton's days, although um, though one didn't uh, didn't like leadership at the at the helm, a lot of people made a lot of money and could afford to look the other way at the the. Uh, problems that the president and his wife made for themselves. Uh, It was a truly interesting time politically. The church, on the other hand, uh, was going through some rather interesting growing pains herself. I say growing pains because uh, John Paul II had a few run-ins on moral issues with President Clinton. But nothing major. 
And of course, he was very busy with the reorganization of the church in the wake of the fall of uh, communism. But we'll talk about that a little bit um, a little bit later. Uh, in the meantime, I want to remind you to go to uh, vmpr.org to hear some of the older uh, versions of this uh, this podcast, the previous chapters in this saga, uh, and also to uh, stay tuned for Night Moves with Greg Keller and uh, Mark Padilla. Greg happens to be my grand knight of the Knights of Columbus, so I've got a vested interest in your, li in your listening to it. Anyway, moving along, uh, one of the, uh, the other things I'd like to draw your attention to before I forget as we get ready to close out the political side of things. Um, although the United States were, in a sense, rather divided politically in those years, in retrospect, they were not nearly as divided as they would become. Uh, and part of this was because there was still a certain amount of civility between the two parties, even in Washington. Uh, obviously, when uh, when Clinton this began to dissolve when Clinton got impeached, but he was guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors, or at least the Senate thought so, or sorry, the House of Representatives thought so. He was acquitted in the Senate, and indeed, they uh, they used to call uh, they used to call uh, President Reagan Teflon. The truth is that Bill Clinton was able, despite the various scandals and so on that, clou that uh, clouded him, the financial dealings that uh, uh, grabbed headlines, his personal picadillos, all the rest of it, he was able to successfully complete two terms as president of the United States. Uh, it was interesting that after he left office some years later, when uh, Barack Obama was looking for the nomination, he felt constrained to get President Clinton's endorsement, which uh, led my uh, my brother to uh, say rather uh, scornfully, was interesting that uh, to get the Democratic National uh, uh, Convention to endorse you for President of the United States, you had to get an endorsement by the country's best known perjurer and adulterer. Now, times had changed, and these were definitely not uh, JFK or Adlai Stevenson's Democrats. But they weren't Taft's Republicans either. And that, uh, that we will be talking about later on, because, of course, in 2000, uh, Mr. Clinton would be replaced with the son of his uh, first opponent, uh, Bush Sr., I would say in summing up the period, however, that there were a lot of opportunities missed, especially in terms of dealing with the newly freed uh, Soviet bloc. There were a lot of might-have-beens, could-have-beens, would-have-beens. But the fact remains that the Soviet bloc did fall and its denizens did become freer than they had been in many decades. And whatever happened after, whatever may yet happen, it was a marvelous thing to see. 
to see the Berlin Wall go down, to see all over the Eastern Bloc churches returned, uh, monasteries returned to their owners. An experience the like of which, ladies and gentlemen, I cannot imagine living through again, but it was wonderful. And it also meant that for a short time, the United States of America were the only superpower to speak of. Even more powerful than China, more powerful than newly partitioned Russia. And the presidency of the United States became a very important and a very difficult burden. But we'll shift our focus to the next session to where the church was at during this period. While all the excitement was going on in the United States uh, politically over those 10 years, in the church, other things were happening. For one thing, uh, the fall of the Soviet bloc allowed the, uh, the Holy Father, John Paul II, access freely to uh, his eastern uh, his, uh Eastern subjects in a way that he simply hadn't had before. His first visit to Poland had, of course, been uproarious and uh, had been seen as a real threat to the regime. Well, when the regime was done away with, as you can imagine, he was exultant. And he made quite a few trips through Eastern Europe. He wanted to go to Russia, but that, uh, that was not in the cards, I'm afraid. However, he did... Um, he did see virtually every uh, every uh, other country in Eastern Central Europe that had been liberated and presided over a period of uh, return and, and reform of those uh, countries' churches. Uh, again, when the communists took over, the church was heavily hobbled. The religious orders were either completely banished or lost almost all their property if not all of it, uh, it was really quite dire. But the church was reestablished not only in the countries of Central Europe, but also in Russia, uh, which was really an amazing, amazing thing. Uh, now, there were other elements, of course, to his pontificate. And among these uh, were his his visits to other parts of the world. His visits to the United States were, from the very beginning, when he would come to America, he was wildly welcomed. Uh, just a, an utterly amazing, uh, amazing time to be alive for him, time to be alive for his subjects. Now, Unfortunately, as he himself pointed out in his last book, the flurry of activity he took part in did not include 
uh, in his estimation, paying enough careful attention to the uh, appointment of bishops. But one thing he did do in this era that was very, very important, that is, he took the, uh, to the degree that he could, he took the Eastern Rite people in Western countries out of the hands of uh, Western Rite bishops, and where he could, put them in the hands of their own bishops. The uh, Eastern Rite uh, dioceses or eparchies in America, Australia, Canada, ballooned in number. Uh, he also uh, really went out of his way, I think, to promote not just the, uh, the Blessed Sacrament and adoration and so on, not just Marian devotion, although, as we saw last time, he really revived those in a big way. He continued with his canonizations, which, again, a lot of people at the time felt that uh, there was a sort of saintly inflation and so on and so forth. But what they perhaps didn't realize was how many of the people that he was canonizing were uh, groups of martyrs in, uh, over the course of a century and a half, martyred over the course of a century and a half, which is truly one of the bloodiest eras in the history of the church. But an area where he was not so successful was in dealing with the Society of St. Pius X. Now, just to recoup uh, from the time before and last, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre had uh, started the Society of St. Pius X with the specific intent of continuing to offer the traditional Mass refusing to have his uh, seminarians offer the new mass, he found himself uh, suspended out of Venus in 76. His attempt to appeal the issue to the apostolic signatura ended in a uh, ultra vires forbidding of the signatura to hear the case by the Cardinal Secretary of State. Now that's a kind of key occurrence because a legal malfeasance of that huge nature could not help but, shall we say, deaden his trust in the Roman authorities' probity. Nevertheless, over the course of the 80s, after the uh, indult, from 85 to 88, uh, after the indult was brought in, which we discussed uh, last week, Lefebvre uh, and Rome negotiate for some sort of regularization. Well, they went back and forth, back and forth on having a bishop appointed who would be able to continue, a young bishop would be able to continue uh, ordaining uh, bishops, for the, or priests rather, for the SSPX after Lefebvre would be gathered to his ancestors. Well, the story varies somewhat depending on who you speak to. But at the end of the day, uh, Lefebvre felt that he was uh, being toyed with and that they did not intend to give him a bishop. So he basically said, well, I'm going to consecrate four bishops on this and such a date, and that's it. We could go along with it or not. Well, they didn't. And so he duly consecrated the four uh, bishops, 
and was uh, duly informed that he and they had incurred latis intensiae excommunication. And from that time to this, up to and including and since the the, uh, lifting of the excommunications, there's been all sorts of uh, ink spilled about whether or not the society is systematic and on and on and on. I'm not going to offer an opinion here. Uh, I'll simply say that the situation was what the situation was. And the same sort of deal that the Holy Father had offered the society was then offered to any of its members or any allied people who would uh, care to take advantage of it. And the result was the creation of what was called the Ecclesia Dei Commission and the foundation of the Fraternity of St. Peter, eventually the Institute of Christ the King, Sovereign Priest, and a number of other uh, allied and similar organizations. From that time on, slowly but surely, the Tridentine Mass, as it's called, and the other traditional sacraments and so forth, began to return to the life of the church from once they had been uh, virtually banished um, since 1974. Interestingly enough, as you may remember from last time, the uh, Commission of Cardinals that uh, uh, John Paul II had appointed to look into the legality of the uh, traditional mass and so forth um that uh it found that um they had never been uh, they had never been forbidden legally now this the the uh situation then uh after the 1974 unsigned note was a gravely unjust one and it would not really be addressed directly until Benedict XVI issued his motu proprio uh, some years later. But slowly but surely, bit by bit, piece by piece, in this place and the next and the next, uh, Latin mass communities sprang up. And there is an interesting thing about those Latin mass communities, ladies and gentlemen, and not just the obvious demographic one, that uh, so many of them attracted uh, young people and young families and so forth at a time when these were beginning to desert regular parishes and droves. No, no, no. It was something even more interesting. And the, uh, the more interesting thing was that in a lot of ways, the Latin mass communities began to achieve what the liturgical movement had wanted to do back in the 20s and 30s. Now this sounds odd, but we have to go back in time a little bit. Remember that in many places prior to the council, liturgical life was not what you would call very high, to use an Anglican term. Low masses were pretty much the norm. Um, And during the weekday, the shorter the better. But the liturgical movement wanted to put the liturgy, put the mass at the very center of people's experience of being Catholic. And more than that, they wanted high mass to be the principal uh, service on Sunday. 
And they wanted the uh, laity to be intensely uh, connected to the liturgical life of the church. Well, as I say, with these Latin mass communities, that is precisely what happened in most of them. Uh, and so ironically, although the new mass was a product of the later liturgical movement, most Latin mass communities from that time to this resemble far more the, what the uh, ideal of the liturgical movement was originally than they do your average pre-Vatican II parish. And whether you find that a good or, or a bad thing, it's true. And it has attracted people. It continues to attract people. Uh, and this was something that uh, Pope John Paul II did indeed take notice of. It was, after all, rather hard to miss. But in the uh, in the period under discussion, he, uh, although he dealt with that, he uh, focused on a lot of interchurch things. He was still bathing in the glow of a uh, revived Eastern Europe. More of that in the next section. Back considering the uh, the place of the church in the uh, ten years under discussion from 1988 to 1998, and as you mentioned, uh, during that period after the uh, 1988 proclamation of Ecclesia Day, the Latin Mass grew and grew and grew slowly but surely over time. Uh, one of the other things I neglected to mention was that it had been a superstition prior to 1988. A love of the old mass, a love of the traditional mass, was in fact indicative of, and I quote, schismatic tendencies and that sort of thing. But uh, Pope John Paul II himself made a point of saying that this was not in fact the case. Uh, and I, uh, I remember very clearly 30 years ago, 1993, when I made the Shot Pilgrimage, uh, the uh, very warm message to the pilgrims that the Pope had sent that was read to us in Notre Dame before we set off. The interventions of, uh, the, interventions of the Pope in uh, life as it was lived otherwise in the United States Catholic life, uh, was something of a mixed bag. Some of his Episcopal, appointment, Episcopal appointments were, well, horrific. One thinks, of course, of Cardinal McCarrick. And we know now that slowly but surely, creeping in the corners after Vatican II, the... Um, horrible wave of pedophilia was building up. Uh, the Pope was a great 
sponsor of um, new movements and new orders, uh, Opus Dei, uh, liberation, uh, communion and liberation were two of his favorites. He made Opus Dei a personal prelature, which was a structure that had not existed until that time. Um, he um, was a great encourager of communion and liberation, as I've said, and really of anything at all that seemed to be growing, that seemed to be doing something, he was definitely in favor of. Uh, one of the uh, one of the things was mentioned last time that he got underway that he pioneered was the pastoral provision for Anglican priests coming into the uh, Catholic Church with their wives and acting as priests, and the erection of a small number of parishes of former Anglicans who had become Catholics as individuals and were brought together. These would be one of the foundations of the Anglican ordinariates that we now have today. He did a number of other uh, important things too during the time under discussion. Uh, he played an important diplomatic role in several disputes between different Catholic countries. Um, having, uh, he had already, having been confronted with the um, spectacle of Father Robert Drynan SJ, who had been in the House of Representatives, uh, racking up the most, uh, the, the highest pro-abortion voting record in Congress. Uh, he had had it added to the new code of canon law that clerics could not sit in, uh, uh, in political office without specific permission from the Holy See. Another thing he had done was to promote a uh, important gentleman named Joseph Ratzinger. Uh, from uh, he made him a cardinal when he was Archbishop of Munich, and then he made him the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Now, the, the funny thing about this is that because of that position, people and because he was German. And, you know, people love uh, their stereotypes more than anything else. Uh, because of this, he um, got the reputation of, uh, you know, being God's Rottweiler and being very tough and all that. Nothing could have been further from the truth, but he did have a great love of the Catholic faith. And he did have a deep desire to see the uh, truth of the faith expounded in the most modern terms possible. Having been a Paritas at Vatican II, he was very much committed to it. But even then, in the CDF, if you read his writings of that period, you could see that he was beginning to develop his notion of the hermeneutic of rupture or the hermeneutic of continuity. In the meantime, he forged a very effective relationship with uh, John Paul II, who no less than three times would refuse to accept his resignation when he wanted to step down. Uh, unbeknownst, perhaps, to either man, it is said he was dooming uh, Cardinal Ratzinger to the papacy. At any rate, time went on. Uh, where um, where the Pope's relationship with President Reagan had been very cordial, 
and was at least polite with Bush, there began to be stresses and strains with Clinton, partly over abortion, uh, under some other issues. But the Pope's popularity, personal popularity, continued to soar, even if that did not necessarily translate into conversions and so on. He did, nevertheless, inspire a great many vocations. And to this day, you'll meet priests who uh, consider themselves John Paul II priests, meaning that he inspired them. And so that's not a, uh, not a small thing at all. And uh, really, really quite marvelous, to tell you the truth, because the church had been in such doldrums uh, in the last years of Paul VI. Unfortunately, however, the lack of attention to Episcopal appointments meant that evil bred in the shadows. And one group that he was particularly uh, fond of, the Legionaries of Christ, boasted, if that's the word I want, a leader who was nothing short of criminal in terms of illicit activity. So this is the dark side of uh, John Paul II's legacy during those years. His health had been somewhat affected by the assassination attempt uh, back in the early 80s. He very slowly began to go downhill, but by 98 was nowhere near as um, afflicted as he would be by the time of his death, although he was definitely beginning to have difficulties. Without wanting to anticipate next week too much, uh, I think it's important to remember that he stayed the course he stayed despite his increasing enfeeblement. And interestingly enough, when confronted with the, uh, both with the horrific scandals that ensued and with various other malfeasances on the part of bishops, had the humility to declare that this was a major mistake of his. And it is ironic in a sense that many of the best appointments made during his pontificate were made in the last two years of his life. He, um, he wrote a, many, a great many important encyclicals during this period of time, um, written very sometimes in a very dense philosophical language that was a bit hard for many of the faithful to follow. But without a doubt, he had a love of the faith, a love of the church, a love of Catholics. And his charisma did attract large crowds. So much so, when he died in uh, 2005, the crowds chanted Santo Subito, Santo Subito. Well, Santo or not, uh, before his canonization, he was definitely uh, remarkable. And he had an understanding in certain areas of life, of people, that one did not expect in high clerics. And part of that was because of his own extremely varied background, uh, working with the resistance against both the Nazis and the communists, 
as an actor, as a minor, working with, uh, with young people. And all of this would stand in very, very good stead in dealing with large numbers of, uh, large numbers of Catholics and non-Catholics alike. All of that said, his contribution uh, to the revival of the Latin Mass, his contribution to the uh, revival of uh, Marian and Eucharistic devotions, and his contribution, above all, to the revival of Catholicism in Central Europe. Tremendous accomplishments all. Um, it, it's, in a sense, in a sense, it's terribly unfair that uh, he should be continually blamed for a number of things that were beyond his his abilities to deal with. Uh, but he triumphed in the end. Uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about the last years of his pontificate next week. But for the immediate, let's just say that the fall of his life work, and he lived to see it happen. And that's not a small thing, ladies and gentlemen. Not a small thing at all. If his attempts to bring peace to the church failed, it was perhaps because the elements of the church that um, were most disagreeable were not going to be subdued easily. Uh, at any rate, stay tuned. Greg Kerr and Mark Padilla will be on with Night Moves. And I will look forward very, very much to seeing you next week when we will continue our saga from 1998 to 2008.